it's crazy how everything's changed. It, but none yeah. of it makes sense, right? The rates went up and we all made more money. Uh, I don't know about the independent side, but the franchise dealers. Definitely not. Uh, Definitely not on the independent side. They're usually pushing <laughs> you down your profits. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Alan Haig is founder of Haig Partners, one of the top dealership buy-sell advisors in the country. He's been involved in the purchase or sale of over 380 dealerships valued at over $5.5 billion. In this conversation, we discuss how dealerships get bought and sold, the best and worst auto franchises, prices people are paying to acquire dealerships, whether dealership values will continue rising, and many lessons from leading $5.5 billion in dealership buy-sell transactions. There are so many gems in this episode, and I think you'll find it fascinating. But before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Fullpath. Wasted data is a serious issue in automotive, but data is the key to driving revenues, which means some dealers out there are just ignoring a gold mine that is staring them in the face. Let's face it, most dealerships are completely overrun with data silos. None of the data sources are integrated with each other, leaving the data as a jumbled mess instead of a clean set that could be turning into cash. Fullpath solves this by gathering, cleaning, and sorting your data into one platform so you can use it to speak to your customers' needs with killer AI-powered marketing campaigns. My friends over at Fullpath are breaking barriers and I'm really excited to have them as a partner of the podcast. I believe in their product and more importantly, in their mission to help dealers grow. Fullpath can help you turn your data into dollars. Find them at fullpath.com. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Alan Haig, welcome to the CDG podcast. How are you, Alan? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Super pumped about this. Haven't had a haven't had a good conversation about the state of the automotive M and A market, dealership acquisitions, and there's tons to ask. So I'm just going to jump right in. First things first, Alan. Give us your background. How did you get to Automotive advisory, dealership advisory, M&A. Give us a story. I started in investment banking straight out of college. I, I took a job uh, with a firm called Drexel Burnham, which was one of the leading M&A shops at that time. And um, I spent three years there learning about M&A and corporate finance. And I went to business school and I graduated. I didn't want to go back into banking initially. I wanted to actually work at a, a company. So I joined the Heisinga family of companies after business school. Uh, he was running auto, uh, excuse me, Blockbuster at that time. And we were trying to evolve it from being a store-based company to a screen-based company. Blockbuster had the opportunity to acquire Netflix for $50 million and passed one of the biggest misses or whiffs in, in corporate development history, I think. Uh, but we sold Blockbuster to Viacom and then Wayne started AutoNation. And I was hired to write a business plan for AutoNation to enter the new vehicle business, the franchise business. They had a group of about 100 people working on the used car superstore side. So I put on my little MBA hat and I banged out a business plan for how to acquire dealerships, how to take the lessons that Blockbuster learned about national brands, scale, best practices, et cetera. And the plan was to consolidate the new vehicle business the way that Blockbuster had in videos and waste management had in trash. Wait, and, I got to uh, This is not, I didn't expect this because the first thing that comes to mind, first of all, I didn't know this Blockbuster story with respect to AutoNation, but the first thing that comes to mind is Circuit City, CarMax, Blockbuster, AutoNation. <laughs> it seems to be some uh, 
seems to be a trend here in auto auto, auto business, at least in the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, Circuit City started uh, CarMax, and Circuit City is no more. And the Blockbuster Boys started AutoNation, and Blockbuster is no more. So that's the creative destruction, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, you know, we had this great business plan. We were all proud of it, and the board approved it. And they said, great, Alan, go buy some car dealerships. And I didn't know a single car dealer. So uh, they teamed me up with some people from Southeast Toyota, and then we ended up acquiring the Maruni organization and they teamed Mike and me up and we went on the road and met with almost all of Mike's friends that would talk with us. And we acquired a lot of stores. We went from zero to $12 billion in franchise revenue in about three years. It was an incredible period of growth. And we bought some of the best businesses in the country and we broke a lot of them. That's another story there too, where we took really talented entrepreneurs that believed in the story of the used car superstores and the consolidation would, would literally take share from the mom and pops and they would suffer. And what I learned, and I think a lot of AutoNation shareholders learned, was that the, the skill of the entrepreneur is greater than the scale of a consolidator. And that's something I think we're still seeing to this day, although we're beginning to see glimpses where scale is going to outweigh talent. So explain that in more depth. You're saying that it doesn't matter how big you are, but at the end of the day, running a dealership, running a business, you need to have that talented entrepreneur to make sure that that ship stays afloat and thrives. Is that more or less what you're saying? Yes. I mean, the, I've never been a general manager um, but the ones that I've met and, and the role that they described to me is really being the orchestrator of a symphony, right? I mean, you got five departments in the franchise dealership, new cars, used cars, parts, service, and body. And if you want to sell a lot of new cars, you have to be able to trade for used cars. So your used car manager has to be able to put a fair number on the trade. And for the used car guy to make money, he's got to be able to have vehicles that are frontline ready, reconditioned and at a good price. So he's got to be able to work with the parts and service folks to get those vehicles reconditioned properly. And the parts and service guys, you know, have their own set of criteria uh, to work with the new and used folks. And that's the general manager that sets the tone to retain the right people, motivate the people, uh, do the marketing and then deal, oh yeah, with the customers that come in, uh, hating to negotiate, but often demanding to negotiate. So it's a very challenging job. And I think what um, some consolidators have tried to do over the years is to try to add the, the benefits of economy and say, hey, well, let us try to remove some of the functions of a general manager, whether it's ordering inventory, whether it's doing the advertising, whether it's coming up with the pay plans, whether it's doing the accounting, remove some of those requirements from the general manager and then maybe you can reduce some of the compensation that goes to the general manager. Um, maybe you can save some additional funds that are going. And also make it easier to hire in theory. You know, you make it, you simplify the role. In yeah, theory, I, it's a bit easier to hire. I know AutoNation had an investor named Eddie Lambert for a long time. And I think when Eddie came into the company and he looked under the hood and he realized that the general managers of a Ford store in Texas were making more than he was paying. CFO of Sears or the president of AutoZone, he was horrified and thought that we were grossly overcompensated as an industry. 
And I think that when you remove that talent and try to replace it with lesser skilled people that have less authority on their business, less autonomy, the results can sometimes suffer. Where talent bleeds away from an organization, it's replaced with lesser talented people and you get a drop in new vehicle sales and that leads to drop to used vehicle sales and that leads to a drop in fixed operations sometimes and the factories are not happy. You can get a, you, you mentioned it, um, something about a flywheel, perpetuating flywheel. What was the term that you used? Car dealership guy? What yeah, was, flywheel. But what was the term you used? Reinforcing flywheel. Reinforcing flywheel. You can get the opposite uh, if you begin to lose talent at a dealership. A death spiral. Death spiral. <laughs> okay. Uh, where as new vehicle sales drop, the reaction is, well, we got to cut advertising. We have to cut inventory. The yeah, sales to death spiral. To work and they see nothing out there. They go across the street and work somewhere else. But anyway, I think that the important part there is um, there's always the discussions, you know, like, oh, is it, should we cut marketing and, you know, every dealer throughout different points of the year, especially when it's slow. I think that the key there is to not think so short term. At least that's how we've done it. We've always thought of longer term, you know, you properly budget, you know, you just don't shoot from the hip. And so that way, regardless if it's slow or not, you're not shutting off your brand advertising. People are going to think of you in three months when they're in the market again. To your point, you avoid that death spiral, which a lot of dealers can fall into. And there were some really good elements I think AutoNation was trying to bring to the market in terms of providing customers with a higher level of transparency because they wanted people to to be customers for life. I mean, when AutoNation first started, I remember I still have it somewhere as a little credit card that's an AutoNation passport. And it was intended for people to keep in their wallets and 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 buy, use for rental cars, use for parts, service, purchasing vehicles, leasing vehicles, and it was going to accrue this loyalty program. Uh, the, the inspections that they had, the money-back guarantees, those are innovations that started at CarMax and AutoNation and now are common throughout our industry as customers begin to demand those services and, uh, and benefits from other retailers as well. So what compelled you to start High Partners and to get into dealership buy-sell advisory? How do we get here? So... I was at AutoNation twice in my career, uh, early in the 90s when we first got going, and then I left because I could see it was going to be a bit of a challenge with the meltdown on the used car superstore side. And I went back into banking, and then uh, from 04 to 08, Mike Murney called and invited me back to head up corporate development. And I realized, really, corporate development for the public traded companies, corporate development mean buying and selling stores, is a small component of what that organization does. The biggest component are operations, right? They've got 200 stores they're operating. They might buy 10 or 20 stores a year. So sometimes my efforts were, you know, challenging to to bring to to uh, fruition. So there was a slowdown and during the Great Recession, and I left and joined, went back to investment banking, and I'd seen that a lot of dealers that were calling AutoNation to sell their business really didn't understand how to present it. They might be great retailers of automobiles, but they didn't know how to retail their dealership. They didn't know how to describe it. They couldn't identify the opportunities for, for us as a buyer. Uh, they were sometimes awkward in terms of their interactions. They were only talking to me sometimes as opposed to offering it to multiple parties at the same time. So I thought, well, maybe I can combine the, the best elements of what I learned in investment banking in terms of M&A with the knowledge that I have of what a dealership looks like and how it operates and what some of the opportunities and challenges are, because I've been buying those stores for AutoNation. So I could use that knowledge of what meeting buyers do when they analyze an opportunity for the benefit of sellers. 
So I could say to the sellers, let us create a package that looks just like what I used to create at AutoNation for the board of directors there. We were going to buy a dealership. So the history of the store, the adjustments to earnings, uh, the opportunities, whether a new, used, fixed, F&I on the expense side, for us to add value, meaning the buyer could buy it and prove something, talk about the market, talk about the facility, but add to that book the, the secret sauce, if you will, to create competition in the sale process between a handful of the most obvious buyers. And I know when I was at AutoNation, I was the only person talking to a, a potential seller. I was the market. I was setting a price. And my offer was the one that they had to accept or reject. They didn't have competing offers if they were dealing exclusively with me. So when we're now representing sellers, in some cases, we'll go to just a one best buyer if our clients are really concerned about confidentiality. But typically, we're going out to eight, 10, maybe 12 of the most likely buyers, the ones that we think are most motivated. And we try to create a competitive auction process that yields our clients the best value. I mean, that's kind of our tagline is maximizing the value of your life's work. Um, so the combination of being an M&A and the combination of auto retail, it seemed like a natural. And so far, we've been having a lot of fun with it. What's typically the the timeline from, you know, from listing to closing a deal, roughly speaking? It's about six months. About half of that is the manufacturer approval process. Really? Uh, but it takes us about a month to create the offer materials, to get real estate uh, appraisals. And then it takes about a month to run a sale process, maybe a little bit less. It takes about a month to negotiate the definitive agreements and do some due diligence. And then it goes for the application and the approval process. And the factories can take a long time reviewing these uh, these documents. But it's it's around six months on average. Got it. Tell us about your scale. You know, I tweeted some basic stuff about, you know, you've been involved in purchase of sale, 380 plus dealerships, but just give us a little bit more in depth on that. So that dates back to when I started at AutoNation. Um, at that time, an expensive dealership might be $20 million. You know, now an expensive dealership is over 200. That's uh, an example of the, of the changes that I've, I've had the pleasure of being involved in in my career. <laughs> but um, a lot of the experience came from the days at AutoNation when we were buying a lot of stores and, uh, I mentioned I was there twice in my career. The second time I was there, we bought we bought 14 stores and we sold 56. And that was kind of painful because some of the stores that we were selling were the ones that I had acquired the first go around in our nation. But uh, through that experience of, of buying and selling a lot of stores and, and also all the transactions that don't close, you know, you look at a lot more than you actually will buy as a buyer. Uh, it, it's given, given me and, and my partners a glimpse of how the market works, California to Texas to Florida, up in the Northeast and the, in the Northwest, Midwest, et cetera. Having been involved in those transactions allows you to kind of identify quickly how a buyer will view an opportunity. Are they going to be excited? If so, how excited? Is there a challenge involved in the business and how will you explain or overcome that challenge? And, um, and then deal with all the different types of buyers. There's a wide range of personalities out there. There's some people that are really quick and really linear, and there's some people who take a while to get there. So you have to start with them first in a process. What do you look for in a buyer? And when I say what do you look for, obviously, you know, they need to have the money and whatnot or financing teed up. But is there anything specific that's like, hey, this is, you know, a good buyer or someone I'd like to work with? Good buyers will have a strategy that, that defines what types of opportunities they're interested in. Um, and they can clearly communicate that to us. So if they say, Hey, I'm interested in stores in 
Florida and Texas, we won't show them one in Ohio. I mean, our clients care about price and they care about confidentiality and they care about speed. Those are probably the three highest objectives they have. So we don't want to show a, a client opportunity to a buyer that's interested in a different type of asset, different geography, different price, different franchise. So if they can clearly communicate to us what they're looking for, what's, what, what is in their buy bucket, that's helpful for us. I think then being reliable, you know, if you say you're interested, you, you follow through, don't make an offer and then disappear. That's hard for us to trust you in a process. But, you know, certainty of closing, certainty of capital, that's important because you, when you sign a contract with a buyer, whether it's a letter of intent or a definitive agreement, you really become dependent upon them a bit to perform based on what they promise to do. And fortunately, we've, we've been able to interact with a lot of great buyers over the years uh, and not had difficulties, but that is important to clients just feeling like they got a solid buyer. What are the hottest markets right now that, you know, you have requests coming in for, what are people looking for? Florida, Texas, those states have enjoyed lots of growth. Uh, they also have zero income taxes for at the state level. So you get to keep all the proceeds from your profits there. Uh, they're also pro pro business. Um, there's not as much litigation in those states. The land costs are lower. Uh, just about every metric people are, you know, the, the demographic, the, the growth is higher. So on every metric, just about the dealers care about those states are leading. But I would say we also see a lot of growth in the Southeast, a lot of interest in the Carolinas, Georgia, Tennessee, et cetera. The mountain states got a big lift. I think during the COVID years, people moved out of the cities and they moved to Idaho and Colorado and so those have been desirable markets as well. Um, you know, California is the one we talk a lot about because it's, it's the biggest state by population. It's a challenge, right, to operate there. You've heard stories. I have a, a friend and, and clients uh, who's bought a lot of stores out there, and his friends warned him not to buy stores in California. But he went in with his eyes open. He's got really good compliance. He's got really good HR. He's got good lawyers, and he just takes that as a part of the cost of doing business. Um, yeah. But that's the hardest state, I think. For, California. For, yeah. It's just, I, I mean, I'm not a, an employment lawyer, but. but I hear the sigh. <laughs> I, I just feel bad sometimes for my dealer clients out there because I feel like they're just looking for what, the, what who's going to, when they hire somebody, they're wondering, okay, if I let you go, what are you going to sue me for? Is it going to be age? Is it going to be sex? Wow. Is it going to be weight? Yeah. Uh, they're just wondering what the claim is going to come from. Not if there's going to be a claim, but what the claim's going to be. Yeah. So other than California, I mean, are you seeing any other states where, you know, valuations are dropping for dealerships or there's just, you know, lower demand? Are you seeing that anywhere else? Uh, I think, I think it's, we've had the good fortune that COVID lifted all boats, supply chain shortages that we had allowed all dealers around the country to earn significantly more money in the last few years. And I think when I go back to what I mentioned at the beginning about the entrepreneur, the strength of the entrepreneur, is that if I'm sitting in a store every day, whether I'm in California or Texas or Florida, and I see conditions starting to change, I can adapt. I can say, hey, we're not going to run that kind of ad again because I got sued for it. Or I'm not going to um, move forward without a training policy for new hires because I got sued for that. So they can adapt pretty quickly. And so uh, profits at stores in California, for instance, went up significantly during the pandemic, just like they did in other places. So 
it's it's not a bad place to do business. It's still a great place to do business because of the size of the population and how much people drive. They're just greater challenges in California. And so you in some ways have to become yeah. a better dealer to to thrive there. You know, if I had a Toyota store in anywhere in Florida, even I could run a store like that and do pretty well. I wouldn't need the skills of of 20 years of retailing. I think I could show up and still sell cars and make money. It feels like we're hitting records with dealership buy sales every single year. It's just gotten hotter and hotter. And I think there was a period, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think there was a period at the end of uh, like around 2021 where people were saying, okay, well, maybe now it's going to start cooling down. Um, then you saw a couple more quarters of record numbers of transactions, no slowdown. What's driving this madness? Like, is it just consolidation? And the need in this technological transformation of cars to have more scale, or what is it? Is it profits? Like, what do you see as driving the dealership demand for M and A? I think you hit on several of them right there. It's a factor of uh, or a function of when COVID hit. Initially, it was a shock, and it hurt dealership values because people thought, "Oh my goodness, we're not going to have any cars to sell, and we're going to have a hard time surviving." And then there was all that stimulus that went out to the consumer and demand sort of exploded at the same time that supply disappeared. Uh, so dealers the last two or three years have been making a tremendous amount of profit and that profit after taxes far exceeded whatever they could spend personally. And so they're looking around and saying, well, what are we going to do with this cash? Can't leave it in the bank because I'm getting at that time less than 1% yield on it. I don't want to buy real estate uh, because I don't know what the future of commercial real estate is going to be. And residential real estate is already pretty expensive. Uh, so what do I want to invest in? And people invested in what they knew. They invested in dealerships. Um, I think, so that's the supply of cash is part of the demand. There were also a lot of risks that consumer or dealers were, were thinking about and concerned about, whether it was autonomous vehicles or Tesla or subscription model. And they looked around and they said, you know what? Those risks all still exist, but they're pretty modest compared to the opportunity. So they just sort of brush those risks aside and continue to invest. That's what I saw from a lot of the private cap viewers. Um, as for the public companies, I mentioned before that there were very few economies of scale that really helped to offset all the extra expenses that large organizations have. But I think the pandemic also advanced digital reselling right? Where people would be comfortable buying a car for $40,000 sight unseen. Carvana demonstrated people want to do that. And at the same time Carvana was kind of ramping up, the pandemic hit and dealers were told you can't sell a car in a showroom. You have to sell it, you know, at the customer's uh, house or outside the showroom. So a lot of develop dealers quickly developed digital retailing capabilities, bought them off the shelf, did themselves, however they handle it. So now we have websites where customers are going and actually transacting. And so this, the, the number of units of inventory you have on your website matters. Uh, Lithia, we did an interview with Brian DeBoer last year. And I looked before the interview, I think he's got 48,000, 50,000 units on driveway.com. If you go to the local dealership group in town, they might have 2,000. That would be a lot. If you go to a store, they might have 150. So all of a sudden, I think the larger dealers began to realize this shift, that it, and it, may, it is slow, it's not going to be exploding, uh, this 
shift is going to benefit firms like ours finally, right? We finally have something that the mom and pops don't. We may not have the local entrepreneurs, but we've got a giant website. We've got the ability to advertise maybe better, more effectively than smaller dealers can. And that over time is going to allow us to steadily take share from our competing dealers and, and take volume and share profitably. I want to give away the products. So I think that was part of the demand that perhaps the larger group saw or for increasing their demands. Like, hey, digital retailing should be uh, favoring larger organizations versus smaller ones. So let's get out there and grow instead of just buying back our stock or something like that. And who are you finding to be most of your sellers? I say over the past two years, is it single points, single point dealerships, mom and pop organizations? What are you seeing? Well, certainly there are some smaller guys or women who say, hey, I inherited this business, you know, and it's made a great living for my family, but it's increasingly challenging. The factories are more involved in my business than they ever had been before. The cost to renovate facilities is growing and significant. And I may be at a disadvantage now because my website, my lot, you know, I've got 200, 300 vehicles in inventory versus 48,000 at, at uh, com. And the values have gone up so much that they're saying, hey, I could sell this business now for enough money. I can live comfortably for the rest of my life with the proceeds of the sale today. Um, so those are some of the folks that are exiting. But on the other side of the scale, you know, we have some clients that have 10, 20 dealerships that maybe they're retirement age, maybe they're not, but their families, they're having conversations and saying, hey, we could sell this business for a billion dollars. And never have to worry about what the impact of electrification or Tesla uh, is going to be on our lives or our grandchildren's lives, right? It's uh, This is multi-generational. This is forever money. So they're saying, why take the risk in remaining in this business? I could sell it, form a family office, have diversified assets, have professional management running these investment companies. So we're seeing both ends of the scale, the people who are the mom and pop that are a little bit worried about the future. And then the groups that, you know, are 10, 20 stores in size that have all the capabilities of larger groups, they've got a brand, they've got inventory, they've got talent. But even some of them are saying, the values are so high right now, why not exit also? And, and, and now I am forever set financially. It's really do you think we've coming reached, from both sides. Do you think valuations have peaked? Like, will we, will we ever have valuations? And I know this is a very, you know, no one knows the answer, but there's no doubt about it that profits in 2021 and, you know, plus minus a couple of years, I mean, they've been just crazy. So like have valuations peaked? What do you think about that? Valuations have peaked. I think they peaked probably the second half of last year, but we're still seeing sales for all time record levels for certain franchises. How do you, so how do you reconcile that? Well, let's say that, um, uh, like, for instance, we represented a Toyota store, Al Hendrickson Toyota store in, in uh, South Florida, sale of that business in June of this year. And um, the previous record, according to all the research we can do, was was a Toyota store acquired in Austin, Texas for about $206 million by one of the publicly traded companies. That was uh, in last year, in 2022. This business sold for a good bit more. Um it was a larger business. It was uh, a more profitable what did it, store. What did it sell for? That's private, uh, but it was more than the two hundred six million uh, that, that oh, the okay, other store it. sold for. Yeah, yeah I, I tweeted about it. I, I thought I tweeted the amount, but I guess it was just 
over the 206 million. But we're gonna have uh we're gonna have Mr. Brett Morgan on the pod in a couple of weeks. So maybe he'll give us some more details. <laughs> yes, and and honestly, they're gonna have a very good return on investment on, on that acquisition. Um the business was Why extremely do you think profitable. Well, I think it was a, it was a, it was the second highest uh sales store for a Toyota store anywhere in the country. It was right behind Lombard Toyota. But the owners, you know, they're really focused a lot on the new side. And I think the Morgan folks, you know, probably will try to uh, sell more used and do more fixed operations. They're going to invest in the facility. So I think there's a good chance that they're going to have, uh, an, you know, one of the top stores in the country for, for that, um, investment. So paying a lot Wait, doesn't mean let's, I want to, I want to just dig a little bit deeper into that. What are the key opportunities, right? This store I tweeted about, it was like a record store or record amount paid for a Toyota store, but walk us through that business opportunity, how you view it. Where were the opportunities to bring value? How do you think about that? So we look at a lot of dealerships every year. And uh, of course, Toyota is one of the best uh, OEM partners. They provide their dealers with a Dora report, which shows how your store is doing relative to your peers. Uh, NCM also provides that data for, for their members. Who's and other organizations too. NCM is a dealership consulting firm. They do 20 groups. And when we were looking at that dealership, we said, wow, this is incredible on the new, uh, but it looks to us based upon standard industry metrics that there are opportunities given this amount of volume for even more sales of used vehicles, even greater fixed operations, and perhaps on the F&I side as well. So in the, the process that we ran, the book we put together, we pointed those out to the handful of potential buyers that we approached with this opportunity. And you'll have to talk with the Morgans. Uh, when we met with them, you know, we reviewed our projections and asked their opinions of them. And we seem to be on the same page with respect to uh, our outlook versus their outlook, but they don't show all their cards. So maybe they think they're going to double use vehicle sales. Maybe they think they'll, you know, sell fewer cars at higher margins. They have to reveal to you their own projections. But I think that, that almost any business that we see by the time we're selling it, there are some opportunities. Because often we're selling a business where the dealer can be older and maybe he's shifted into the, I don't need to get every penny out of this business, but I don't want problems out of this business. They begin to get a little bit defensive in their operations as opposed to aggressive. So we're selling a business now where there are 10 rooftops roughly and the average sales effectiveness is in the 60s. So we're projecting a significant increase in sales at that dealership group for the future buyer. So a couple more questions for clarity here, right? So the north of 200 million or record sale, that's strictly referring to loose sky value, correct? Yes, that's right. That does not include the real estate. Got it. So we're talking for the audience that's listening, we're talking about goodwill. We're not talking about like, this is for the brand. We're not talking about the real estate. We're not talking about the inventory, nothing else. Uh, so, I mean, just mind boggling numbers, like to your point, when you think about this, how, how all this has just exploded over the last, you know, two decades. Yeah. The, uh, the, the real estate was an addition as well as the other assets. Um, so it's back to your question. Will we ever get back here again? Is this the peak value? I suspect that we may have hit the peak on the other hand, you know, I'm learning about this thing called a strike in the UAW and the possibility that might be striking all Sharia, the domestics at the same time. You know, if that happens, we're going to have another inventory shortage. <laughs> so. These margins may not be going anywhere. We'll see. But I think this 
combination of circumstances we had, maybe a once in a lifetime event for, for me at least. I think you're a little bit younger than I am, but the massive government stimulus at the same time as the supply chain shortage where profits at car dealerships tripled, I'm not sure that we'll see that again anytime soon that I can predict. But I also think that it's a perception, a belief that dealership owners have today that the profits are going to land at a higher level than they were in 2019. So we're not going to go back to where we were. That's interesting. Why do you think that's a belief or is that like a consensus based on the way you're saying that? So let's have a little debate about this. Interesting. You, um, I, I talked one time, I was, I was representing a dealership group, the Lehman Group in South Florida. This was about two years ago. And I was talking to one of the buyers and uh, the Lehman Group had several Hyundai and Kia stores that were profitable before the pandemic, but they were making maybe $800 a car in front end gross. Uh, and now they were making $3,500, $4,000 a car. And the dealership buyer was saying, hey, Alan, how long can these profits stay here? Aren't they going to go back to where we were? And I said, oh, no, you know, every manufacturer's realized it's better to have less supply in the market. And um, uh, we're going to have higher grosses forever. And the dealership buyer said, pardon the phrase, but bullshit. <laughs> he didn't really buy that at all. Uh, they, he thought grosses would go right back to where they were and that the profits would go right back to where they were. Um, now that person didn't end up making the best offer, uh, Lithia ended up acquiring that group, but that's one perspective that the, the factories will overproduce, viewers will have to cut the prices to sell the inventory, to clear their lots, uh, our cost structure go back to where they were and we make the same amount of money before. Um, I think that is a minority opinion now. I think people are believing that the factories have learned that they do better with fewer units. I think also the factories are having a hard time producing units as they shift towards EVs. Hard to imagine we're going to have an oversupply of EVs when the factories are losing money on every one, right? Um, and I think also, I mean, I have a client, our, our most recent client, uh, a gentleman in his 70s, and he has wisdom that sometimes I'm in my 50s. I, I haven't yet gained but he, he, he said something that, you know, people have been accustomed to making so much money in this business now. When I say people, I mean salespeople, sales managers, general managers, dealers. They're not going to be willing to go back to making the same profits they were before. They're going to find ways to keep more profits high or costs low to have a, a permanently higher uh, base level of profits at these dealerships. And I don't know what the future is going to be anymore, maybe than you do, cardiovascular guy. But when I listen to my elders talk about human nature and how people react, and again, I think about the entrepreneurial nature of this business, I see so many little levers that people are able to pull that help the franchise model to be successful year in and year out. You know, for instance, like what? Well, thank you for a good segue. So we, uh, as, a, as an organization, are, are trying to find ways to give back to our industry. And one of the ways that I've been trying to give back personally is by providing money to Broward College to help them build out their automotive training program. Broward College is one of the largest community colleges in the country, and they have an automotive training center. And I know how much money people can make if they enter the car business, but the car business doesn't do a very good job attracting or advertising its career opportunities to young people, in my opinion. I agree. Nobody in my college ever thought about going to work for a car dealership, you know? Uh, but 
So we've been, you know, trying to find ways to increase the number of technicians entering the business. And what the dealers have done is saying, oh, we have a shortage of technicians. What are we going to do? We're going to do less service work, but they're going to, they just raise the labor rates. So we have, we have some clients in South Florida, labor rates are over $300 an hour. So fewer ROs, more value per RO, you know, that's the beauty of the carpet of this auto retail model is you can adjust based upon supply and demand. Now, is that sustainable forever? I'm not sure why not. That's the magic question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the question, well, well EVs are going to replace all that service business. I'm not so sure. The, the studies that I've seen so far, uh, maybe in the short term, two, three year period, there may be fewer dollars spent on EVs than ICE vehicles. But the data I've seen is over the long term, it's really not much different. And uh, there's still plenty of components of EVs that break. And then what happens when the battery goes bad? So we've not seen demand for these dealerships dissipate and the advent of all these risks. We've seen demand for dealerships increase, partly because of the flexibility of the business model, the confirmation that people have that. I think there's certain parts I disagree, but the main one where I do agree is that dealers are very creative um, and entrepreneurial. And I think that where that margin preservation is going to continue coming from, in my opinion, is from just streamlining the business, cutting out quote unquote middlemen. I just tweeted out about, uh, I think Dale Pollack actually uh, uh, put a blog post about this, about the increase in buying cars from the street. Just dealers, you know, advertising, we will buy your car. It's increased roughly 3x over the last couple of years. And I think it's these types of acts that help dealers preserve margin and improve margin ultimately, uh, because now you're cutting out, you know, transportation to and from auction, you're cutting out auction fees. And you're arguably getting a more desirable vehicle that you can't even get at auction, period. Um, so I think that that's where a lot of creativity has come from and will continue coming from. I think that the other point that you made or that you know a friend of yours made about getting used to certain income range and then dropping, I'm less of a, I, I don't buy that as much because I just think at the end of the day, it's a free market. And you know if you have to get adjusted to making 20% less, you will if that's what the market is offering. But I do hear your point that the industry especially throughout 2021 when all these record profits and pay plans were already set prior to the year you have GMs running you know one store two stores making 500,000 a million dollars a year you know I personally know some some of these people uh, just crazy numbers it's definitely been a crazy market to experience witness and have people that I know that you know have told me about you know their stories as well well and Car dealership guy, we didn't really talk that much about technology and AI and you know products that don't even exist today and how they're going to increase efficiencies. I mean, it's still incredible to me all the the wholesale stuff that we see at our at our clients. You know, and one guy makes six hundred dollars a car, one guy loses six hundred dollars a car. You know, they bought this car because they were convinced it would sell, and it didn't sell, so they sell it for a loss. Like that feels like an opportunity waiting to be fixed. I think I listened to Alex Vetter on your your podcast not too long ago, and I think he they bought a product that has to do with the wholesale side to help dealers understand how to mitigate those. That's that's one little example. Wholesale people don't talk about that much, but if you're losing six hundred dollars wholesale on thousand vehicles, not that hard to do the math right there and figure out if you can avoid that wholesale loss, you pick up six hundred grand. Um, so I I think technology has not yet had as big an impact on auto retail as it's going to. In the next 10 years. I think that as as all these inventories go online, especially as 
vehicle supply comes back, this is going to be where I think the competition is going to start again in, in the business for, for auto retailing, not to be a retailer as opposed to an order taker. And this is where I think some of the larger guys are going to be going to take share from the smaller guys because of they're going to use technology. They're going to embrace it faster and use it more effectively. And that's my fear. If I have a fear for broader retail, it's the smaller dealers that don't embrace that technology and don't grow. They're going to suffer. The value of their stores could go down. But the folks that embrace it, the folks who grow, the folks that have great options for customers, I'm not sure that their stores are going to go down in value. We might go sideways, maybe we won't go up, but I don't see them, you know, declining significantly. What are the most common areas of opportunity or just opportunities that buyers are looking for? Like is technology that number one or is it, you know, other things right now? What, what are you seeing? Well, the consolidators are constantly talking with the tech suppliers, right? The tech stack to figure out, you know, do you have a better CRM or you know, what's the most effective way to advertise myself and my products? I'm not the expert in that world, so I won't comment. I would say in terms of people acquiring dealerships, what they're looking for is it depends upon the buyer. For some folks are looking for turnaround opportunities, right? And they want to have uh, dealerships that aren't performing. So I mentioned this dealership group that's got sales in the 60% range. We're going to get a higher multiple for that business than we would for somebody who's at 120, 120% sales effectiveness because they can add more value. Define sales effectiveness? That's a measurement that the factories put out that say, hey, we expect you to sell a thousand cars in your AOR, your area of responsibility based upon registration data and how we perform in other markets, but you're only selling 600. So you're not selling as many cars as, as we would expect. It's not always a correct measurement. Maybe there's some nuances about the geography where the, the area is not measured properly, yeah. but in general, it's a way for a factory to give a report card to a dealer. You're not selling enough cars. Another one is on customer satisfaction with the ratings that get back to customers. So that's one thing. Some people want to have growth opportunities. Some people you know, want to have a well-run store because they don't have a lot of new management or energy to bring in to fix something. They want to have something that's already running well. I would say that's a lot of the public companies that want to buy something that's running well and then plug in their own technology. For some people, it's brand that matters. Uh, Toyota has been just so well run the last few years during the pandemic, almost every dealer is looking to add a Toyota business to their portfolio if they can afford it. Um, so we see the demand for franchises like Toyota, Lexus, and some of the other uh, Subaru, the other luxury stores like Mercedes and BMW are still very high. But also brands that used to be, I'll call them a discount brand, like a Hyundai or Kia, you know, before the pandemic hit, they had started to bring in some Unbelievable really nice how they've grown. What's that? I said, it's unbelievable how they've grown. Incredible. And they've done a fantastic job on the product side, on the marketing side. Uh, the value of a Kia store today or a Hyundai store today is probably well, at least five times what it used to be. Uh, if, if average list guy value is almost tripled, Hyundai Kia has probably gone up five times, maybe more. So what are they um, selling for nowadays? Hyundai Kia? Well, we have them. And our latest report, we, we're, we're about to put out our second quarter report, but uh, we've moved Hyundai Kia up twice in the last six months. Um, they still trade below Honda and Toyota in terms of the multiple of earnings, um, but not by much. Um, wow. Part of the challenge with Hyundai and Kia is they do have 
facility programs. Hyundai has been pretty tough on their dealers and demanding new buildings, Kia as well. Uh, but if we have Honda trading on average at six to seven times, Kia we have four and a half to five and a half, Hyundai about the same. So it's still a discount to the larger uh, brands, but maybe not for long. Um, Subaru has moved up really to be the same as Honda in the eyes of buyers, in our opinion. And for the audience listening, you're saying the multiples you're listing, that's on net income, right? Well, we'll call it pre-tax income, but it's a pre-tax, pre-tax income. And of course, the second question is, like, well, what year income are we talking about? Trailing that's 12 that's, months are we talking that's about? where I wanted to get to. <laughs> Let's talk about that. How are we valuing these dealerships? So I'll give you a little history, car dealership guy. Let's um, do it. We went back in time about a month ago, a couple months ago. We said, hey, it's been tricky valuing stores. We go back to how we value the businesses that we sold in 2019. They hired us to do evaluation. We gave them evaluation. They sold this business. How do we do? And we usually give folks a range. We think Blue Sky offers are going to come between 20 and 25 million, for instance. So we went back at the stores that we sold in 2019. The offers that our clients accepted were at 90%, 98% of the midpoint of, of the range we gave them. 98% of the midpoint. So we were really good in 2019 and late 2018 valuing stores. The pandemic hit and it, it scrambled things. In the first six months of the year, people were scared. Uh, and then things started to pick up really strongly in the last part of the year. So in that year, the clients accepted offers that were 86% of the midpoint of the range that we had given them. Now, remember, a lot of the evaluations we've done were pre-COVID. So they're before people got scared. In 2020, the offers people accepted were 22% above the midpoint of our range. So probably above the top of our range. In 2022, they were 26% higher than the midpoint of our range. 2023, we're still running the math. But the reason why I share that data is to show that before the pandemic, we were really good at predicting value. It's been a little more challenging since then. Uh, so now when we reverse engineer you know, how the offers are coming, people are looking at averaging more than one period of earnings. So not just taking the last 12 months and putting a seven multiple on and paying it, typically. Uh, they're probably trying to take an average of maybe 2020 in the last 12 months, maybe an average of three or four periods. I think as we go further away from pandemic times, 2019 might come back into the average as well. Uh, we can't give away all our secret sauce at this point on this call, cardioship guy, but I'll make a deal with you. If you'll reveal your true identity, we'll give up the secret sauce. Oh, look at that. <laughs> What's in it for me? <laughs> <laughs> the secret sauce to share with your audience. Yeah, right. But so what are you seeing like for the majority of deals right now? What is the rough average or what periods are they using? Last two years, last three years, last 12 months? What are you really seeing out there as the consensus, would you say? And I know yeah, it's well, not our, all the same, but yeah. Well, earnings are, are coming down significantly. I think the publics are reporting over the last week and they'll be reporting this week too. And so far, I think we've seen between zero and a 30% decline in their profits for the year compared to the same period last year. But that hasn't scared buyers. I think um, you know profits tripled. Blue Sky values doubled. They doubled versus tripled because buyers knew that they wouldn't remain elevated forever. They would have to come back down. Yet we're seeing, you know, the publics, the publics are all trading at like near all-time highs, if not all-time highs. Yeah. 
So, so their goodwill, you know, is high. So therefore, why, why wouldn't the private dealership values remain? In fact, I think that- yeah, to be uh, clear, when I, when I say the publics, again, for audience listening, I'm just talking about the publicly traded auto dealer groups. You have the Auto Nations, Penske's, Lithia's, Asbury, Group One, yada, yada, yada. They're all trading just, you know, just exorbitant uh, market caps relative to, you know, 2019, you look at, I think one of, uh, I think one follower left a comment that Auto Nation is up roughly 300% from its COVID low compared to that S&P 500 is up like 55%. Uh, I'm sure someone on this who's listening could fact check this, but still pretty remarkable. I mean, 6X difference. So, so the board at AutoNation in their latest uh, earnings call, I think uh, they share that the board has said, stop buying back stock, spend your capital doing something else, which in their business is, I think, going to mean acquisitions. So that capital that used to go back to purchasing shares during the pandemic when they thought maybe their share price was depressed, it's going to go into the market for M&A to acquire dealerships. So, you know, just taking people at their word, I would expect they would be buying more stores in the future than they have in the past. So going back to the supply, demand, you know, balance in the market, even as earnings come down at the dealerships, we're not seeing reduction in demand for the stores. And so we expect dealership values will continue to be elevated Certainly this year, I mean, the offers, I mentioned that the, the Al Hedgeson store that we sold in June, that was the record price ever for any dealership, any franchise. In January of this year, we sold a Stellantis dealership for the highest value for that franchise. I think later on this year, we'll be announcing another record sale for a different franchise. So we're still seeing really strong prices being paid for these stores because the Profits are still. Give, give us a hint. Where where is this potential record sale? Where is this at? I think I think it'll be in the southeast, and it'll be on the luxury side. Um, you know, until it oh. has, it hasn't. So I don't want to jinx it. But yeah, um, I I would expect we'd see this with with other uh, franchises as well. Subaru, for instance, is a brand that's been growing very strongly. I would expect we'd see it on the Hyundai side, on the Kia side, uh, where the cash flows have grown significantly in those brands in the last three four years. Mm-hmm. And somebody's going to really step out and say, okay, I got a store, a Hyundai store that's making $30 million a year, $40 million a year. I'm going to sell it for hundreds of millions of dollars. And that'll happen. What brand or brands are dealers staying away from? I mean, what are you just bearish on? Talk to me. Um, I mean, there's some Look, brands. Look, I get it. You have, cl- you have clients across <laughs> all brands, but I think I definitely have my suspicions here. <laughs> well, I think that Ford has been frustrating for its dealer base. You know, if you've been a Ford dealer, might have had the store for generations. Then you have, feel I think for some dealers, I feel like Mr. Farley is trying to become Elon Musk. Right? We're just going to throw away the old business model and adopt EVs. And, you know, splitting the company into three parts and him deciding to run the EV side. You know, okay, if you're a guy that makes 100% of your income selling nice vehicles, I'm not sure that makes you feel great. And when they said, hey, you know, you're going to have to invest one point it was a million seven per store to qualify to, to even get EVs shipped to your store. That's a significant burden for almost every Ford dealer because the average Ford store is pretty small. They sell maybe 500 new units a year. So to invest a million seven, how many EVs will you get? What will the margin get? Like the payback period's terrible. Uh, and yet still a lot of dealers are trying to do it. Like, and, and then the math on this sometimes, it gets a little comical. For instance, we had a client in the upper Midwest uh, that called the city and said, hey, I want to put in these EV charging stations. Can you 
we have enough capacity. They said, no, you don't have enough capacity and we can't bring you any capacity for just more, more electricity. They couldn't bring it to a store. So he bought the chargers from the Ford supplier. He installed them. He built a wall, a six foot wall uh, on two sides. And then behind the wall, he installed a diesel generator that powered the EV charger. <laughs> Which I was just saying, like, I don't think this is the plan yeah. to have diesel power uh, fueling these green vehicles. Uh, but he had to do that in order to, to become a dealer for EVs. I was on a live uh, Twitter spaces, like a live podcast on Twitter, and Elon brought me up to speak. Um, and it was Elon, Jim Farley, and myself, and another gentleman named Farzad. And I asked Jim straight up, I said, Jim, the reality is you're talking about being a good partner to your dealers. I get questions all the time about your strategy. And I'm not I'm not here to comment on whether you're, it's you know the right strategy, the wrong strategy. I think I have some opinions on how I would navigate any science project within a company, especially a public company, probably makes sense to outsource as much of it as possible. We could talk about that later. But the point is, I asked him, I said, Jim, I said, you know, you're making you're making all these statements, but the valuations for Ford stores have just continued declining. And I mentioned some specific stats and he kind of dodged a question. It's on my Twitter. I mean you could you could listen to this, but it's interesting. He's just sort of dodged a question. Uh, but anyways, it seems like dealers are definitely sharing that sentiment that their transition to EVs, the way it's being done, it feels like they're kind of, you know, the dealer who's their core customer is, um, they're just not doing it the right way. That's been hard. And I think Stellantis has also been a challenge the last year or so. They, um, the profits of those stores were really strong. It was an excellent franchise. Uh, their sales were growing. They were one of the few domestics, the only domestic that really had good supply. They did a great job supplying their dealers. But I think they just, in the words of one dealer, they got too greedy. You know, they raised their wholesale prices significantly to dealers, uh, made them very hard to sell. They overproduced. And so the profits at Solanus dealers started to sh slow down the second half of last year. And I don't know if they really fixed the problem the first half of this year. And then they also made that announcement where if you're in a carb state, they're not going to ship you. I think the the e jeeps, the, the Wranglers, like the have the EV, the hybrids, and if you're in non-carb states, they're not going to ship you the EV jeeps. So I don't know how they're going to compete with other factories that have ICE and EVs on the lots. So that that has got to get fixed. That could really impair. Who do you think, when it comes to electrification, EVs, Tesla? Who do you think are going to be the biggest losers, long term? What brands? I have a feeling that the government will have to retract the requirements for EV penetration in California and every other state. And just other people have done a great job showing that there's just not the capacity to generate electricity. There's not the capacity to distribute it. And consumers can't afford these vehicles very easily either. Um, so... I'm not sure there's going to be as significant a shift as maybe you'd expect otherwise. Uh, another quote I heard from Alex Vetter on your on that podcast was that he can see he can predict the market based upon what the search is. I think the EV sales are at six percent, seven percent in this country. EV search is at three percent. It has to be that people are buying EVs maybe because there's not much else to buy. They're not really you know demanding that product in the same level as people and the factories are hoping. So. The laws are to get the subsidies in the U.S., you have to build the batteries here, right? So 
Tesla's going to continue to win, right? They're going to continue to take share. Uh, there are not that many other battery plants that exist in the U.S. So I think everybody loses share of Tesla for a while until the battery capacity comes up or they change the rules. Do you have any dealers that are specifically very bullish on the EV segment? Any specific brands? Because it seems like the opinion you share there and just that notion is, I do hear it pretty often. Uh, but I'm curious to know if there's any specific brands or dealers that are giving you like a different opinion, like, hey, I'm very bullish on this. Here's how I think we're going to benefit from electrification. So I would encourage you to uh, maybe talk to Jeff Bohanka from, he's currently chair of NADA and has one of the largest dealership groups located in uh, Virginia and Maryland area. He, uh, he is a big proponent for understanding EVs and making sure that we can, that their group can sell EVs, explain them to customers, service them. I think he's on his third or fourth EV himself that he drives. He purchases and drives personally. Uh, I would probably push you to him to ask that question. So he hears it from customers more than I do every day. Yeah. But I will tell you that the experience I have heard from Ford dealers selling Ford Lightnings has not been good. They, uh, you know, they have vehicles that come in or customers come in excited about the truck. They put down in deposits. They come and get the vehicle. Within a month or two, they want to trade it. You know, it doesn't have the range. It Why? Oh. Range. Yeah, I mean, it's a safety thing too. Like uh, this dealer, another dealer, I was talking about the Ford, the f- same Ford dealer built the charging system with the diesel generator. Yeah. yeah. He said he'd gotten in Ford, five Ford Lightnings, he'd sold five and they'd all come back. And he said, you know, customers in his area, they want to they take the snowmobile to the lake. And uh, they got it there, but they couldn't get back. Didn't have the range to do a round wow. trip. Uh, and so they had, they said, now we've learned that we don't sell these as pickups. We sell these as a family sport utility vehicle. It's for local use only. It's not for towing vehicles. It might have 10,000 pounds of pulling. You can, you can haul it, but you can't haul it very far. And he said, they will not take a Ford Lightning and trade. They're afraid. What is the resale value yeah. of, this, of this truck? Is Ford going to cut the wholesale price? Is that going to gut the value of my inventory? So... The launch of the EV pickup trucks so far has been limited, but I've not heard positive experiences from the consumers in general. So if that continues, I don't see how Ford, Chevrolet, GMC, Stellantis really get harmed that much if EVs are just not a good fit for pickups. So you mentioned experience just for consumers listening. I mean, you see a lot of dealerships changing hands. Which brands do you think offer the best experience for consumers? Best brands for consumers. Uh, I mean, the brands that are taking share, you have to say they have a good experience. Um, although I do hear complaints about Tesla. Tesla's taken a tremendous amount of share, particularly from, I would say, luxury brands. But when the vehicles break, it's a tough experience, right? Um, Toyota and Lexus are legendary for their customer service, particularly Lexus. That's not changed. They still do an excellent job taking care of customers, providing owners. The German luxury brands are the same way. Those brands typically have a little higher loyalty than others. Uh, I would say from residual value, the Hyundai's and the Kia, World Subaru, obviously do a great job with their customers. Loyalty at Subaru is off the charts from a marketing standpoint, what Tom Dahl and his staff did there to create kind of a heartwarming, lovable brand out of Subaru products, which are they're not the sexiest cars out there, right? Um, yeah. But they somehow created the, the affection of love around the Subaru. So that's brilliance. So I would say some of the, those are some of the brands that, that I tip my hat to. 
doing a great job in the minds of consumers. Zooming out, do you think that the next, just let's say the next decade, do you think that we're going to continue seeing an active and just a hot dealership buy-sell market like we've seen over the past decade? Yes, I think we will because um, in the past, might have been 300 stores that traded every year. I think we'll probably land in the 400s going forward. So that's roughly, you know, a third more stores per year trading hands. And I think it's because the stores have become so valuable. In some ways, they're harder to transition to the next generation. Let's say if- What do you mean? Well, let's say there's a, a dad. The dealers are almost all men for some reason. Uh, but let's say there's a dad that has a dealership, a Toyota store. And it's worth 50 million, 100 million. $200 million. And he has a son and a daughter. And let's say the daughter wants to be the dealer and the son doesn't. How is he going to transition that asset to his daughter? Is he, is he going to give a $200 million loan to the daughter? Is she going to be willing to take on that kind of a loan? You know, the business might not be good forever. Maybe there's a competitor that comes. Maybe who knows what could happen, right? So I think in a case like that, where the business gets to be so valuable, the family might just decide, let's just get a silo of cash sell this asset and get cash and then we can figure out how to divide the cash more easily going forward. I never thought about it like that, but I think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, we're not talking about a couple million anymore. We're talking about tens, hundreds in some cases, to your point. Well, I think if, if you do the math, you say, hey, if I can sell my business for 100, 200, 300 million dollars, a billion dollars, put that on the market at 5%, 7%, whatever the market's going to yield and let that compound for 20 years, your family's going to be a billionaire, even at the, at the bottom end of that. So you could do that or you could stay in the car business. So I think for a lot of people that have one store or multiple family members, it's hard to transition that business the more valuable it gets. And I think also a lot of, like we had a client, not everyone loves to be the car business. We had a client, uh, had seven stores. Dad was in his nineties. The kids were in their fifties. They wanted to sell, but dad didn't. Kids prevailed, sold the business. I talked to one of, one of the kids, one of my clients, you know, a couple months later, and I'd seen him, a photograph of him. And when I saw him as a car dealer, he was wearing, you know, blue shirt and a blue blazer and haircut short, you know, looked like he would be going out in the lot and deal with customers. And his look had totally changed. He had kind of slick back hair. He was wearing a black leather jacket, just looked happy and youthful. And I said, what, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, I've started a business now. We're now booking jazz bands into uh, all these clubs in the Midwest. And, and I realized like his whole life, he really wanted to be in the music business. But because dad was a car dealer, <laughs> he went into the car business. So by the sale of the family business, it gave him and his sister nine figures worth of money to go and be their true selves, right? Uh, we have another client. The Saltzman family, they owned uh, two Stellantis stores in Charlotte. I mentioned we had a record sale for, for one of their stores in, in uh, Lake Norman area. Uh, they sold their business. She started a charitable foundation, put in a significant amount of their after-tax proceeds into this charitable foundation. Every day, she's working about how to make the lives better in this area around where their store was, right? He took some of the money he got, uh, a bought an airplane, and he's investing in multiple businesses. They're using that plane to fly around and see the grandkids, the sporting events, have the grandkids come see them, see their kids, et cetera. So they've sold this business rather than transition to their kids. Gives her a chance to do what she wants to do on the charity side. Gives him a chance to move from being a dealer to an investor. 
and have a better family life. So he still likes the car business, investing in the car business, technology company, retail business. But it made sense for them to divest this asset because it had grown in value so much they couldn't afford not to, so to speak. Well, there you have it, folks. Sell your dealership, move to the Bahamas, and go lay on the beach (laughs) (laughs) and call it a day. I like it. Hey, I I do have another question before we wrap up. Independent dealers. I'm an independent dealer. Non-franchise, right? No Toyota shingles above my head. Will we ever see an active independent dealer market? Will that ever happen? And the second follow-up to that is, how do you even price independence? It's a good question. Over the years, we've been contacted by by many independent dealers asking for assistance in selling their companies. And um, I feel like the independent dealers may be the best dealers out there because they have almost no one helping them. And they're still able to thrive and, and make good livings for themselves and their families. Uh, when I say almost no one helping them, if you consider the franchise dealer, they've got a global manufacturer that's providing to them an exclusive area product that they can sell. They finance those products to the customer. They finance those products to the dealer. When the products break, they pay the dealer to repair them. Uh, They do billions of dollars of advertising every year. They send customers to their retailers. There are all kinds of advantages that franchise dealers have that independents do Floor plan credits, floor plan credits, marketing. Yes. Floor plan credits, marketing, advertising, all that stuff you're saying. So franchise dealers have got a uh, significant head start every month to making money over the over the independent dealer that really has one department that they're working with, right? Used cars. So the challenge I think in creating a market for independent dealers is you mentioned floor plan. That is no guarantee for independence. Right? When when times get tough, the firms that provide floor plan uh, to independent dealers sometimes pull back. You know, they're worried about exposure to subprime credit. So they might reduce the floor plan. They might require dealers to put down more equity. They might pull it all together. So if I'm a buyer and I'm thinking about buying a franchise business or independent business, there's no guarantee of financing for an independent dealer. There is guarantee of financing with a franchise dealer. If I'm thinking about making- Is that really, I mean, let's assume for a second that, you know, you're putting up some more capital as a buyer and the floor plan and- Maybe you don't need as much of a floor plan or you only need 50%, right? Like putting financing aside, I mean, is that, is that in your opinion, the, the biggest gating item to an active independent dealer M&A market? Well, so you're a successful independent dealer. Banks have seen your track record. They want to loan you money. I'm going to come buy your business. I want to take the same terms. Does the bank give me the same credit they give you? I would bet they wouldn't. I wouldn't if I was a lender. We've done... So we've done some transitions, you know, to speak vaguely. And I can tell you that it depends. For example, right? Like if you're making a transitions, a transition internally, it's a very case by case. Is this someone that's been with the dealership? How affiliated have they been? Is there a relationship? Are they the GM? I would say it's not black and white from my experience as an indie on but that it's a, end. It's still a question, right? I and I had a friend that I worked with at AutoNation. When the there's no was- there's no certainty. There's yeah. no certainty for sure. This is a guy who I started with at, at AutoNation. We bought stores together. He left AutoNation and became an independent dealer. And then in the Great Recession, they pulled his floor plan. Both his stores went dark. He's now he's now a uh, financial planner. He had to get out of the business. I think the other question too, if I have, I'm an investor, is you are making, let's say you're making a million dollars at a location. 
and you want $3 million for it. And I'm like, yeah, but there's an empty lot right across the street where I could buy some cars and I could hire your salespeople, your manager to come over and sell those for me. And couldn't I be in business a lot less than paying you a multiple of earnings for your, your business? Couldn't I just go do that myself versus on the franchise side? You can't just go and set up a Toyota store, right? You have to buy them. Uh, and then I have less diversification. The used car market declines. I lose money at, you know, on my inventory versus I've got parts, franchise, business got parts and service, warranty work. The new, you have more levers that you can pull, more flexibility as a business than on the independent side. So I feel there have been some groups that have grown large enough to sell. I mean, Penske bought two groups uh, up in the Northeast. I think it was right before the pandemic. But what I've seen so much of the value of even groups that have five, six locations, the entrepreneur is such a core part of how that business evolved over time. They know where to source the vehicles. They know who to hire. They know how to get them financed for the retail level or the wholesale level. They're just excellent business people. They've slowly crafted this organization over decades. They want to retire. They have so much knowledge that can somebody step up and, and sustain what they've created, much less try to scale it into, into a different area. So if you look at all the used car store chains that are out there, I mean, Echo Park has been a great challenge for, for uh, Sonic. Uh, AutoNation's trying again with their superstores. But they're a long list of failures, you know, for the just the, the use only dealership. Uh, somebody, a, a mentor of mine, because we're talking about the used car business, he had a phrase that sticks on my head. He goes, you know, I know a lot of really rich new car dealers. I don't know a lot of really rich used car dealers. It's just a much harder business than being on the franchise. And so back to your question, will we ever see a market for this. I think if there's a technology angle that reduces the demand for superhuman level entrepreneurial abilities in independent dealership, if there's some technology that can simplify the operations, if there is a lender that gets comfortable with that technology and will provide guaranteed flooring so that I could step in as an, an investor or a buyer and say, I'm going to buy this business and it's bulletproof right? Because they're always going to be used car sales. There are more used car sales than there are new car sales every year by a factor of what, three, something like that. So in some ways I could get bigger than being a franchise dealer. But until you can remove the risk of losing the flooring, until you can add enough technology to make sure that your business model is way better than what I could do if I set up business across the street from you, I think it's going to be hard to have goodwill value in an active market for independent dealerships. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think two things. I think number one, I think the entrepreneur is extremely key. Fully agree with that. And I think that was, you, when you mentioned that, I definitely echo that. I think the second thing is we've just invested a tremendous amount in brand value. Again, very, you, there's no playbook for this type of stuff, right? How do you build brand takes years, takes a lot of work, a lot of good experiences, forging relationships with with great influencers and other forms of unique marketing that is not just like, hey, let me go turn on a Google ad, but it builds great marketing. Um, I've also, the most successful used car dealerships I've seen, as well as what we've done in the past, is I've focused on specific niches within the market. 
not just like, hey, let me sell any car to anyone. You can do that. Some people just try to kind of you know supply everything to the market. But I think that the used car dealers I've seen be the most successful have really focused, whether it be I'm focusing on, you know, challenged credit and being a financing provider, sort of like financing is my key value proposition, or maybe I'm focusing on, call it higher mileage, five plus year old cars, whatever it may be. Those have been the ones that I've seen sustain the longest, or at least have really brand themselves in a way to have consistent business and a state afloat. And I think to your point, it, I think that the biggest challenge I see is lots of used car dealers are not well capitalized. They're just, whether it be they're overextending floor plans or whatnot, that's always an issue. I do see that the used car dealers that are well capitalized and maybe don't even have a floor plan, obviously they're, they typically you know last the longest and do the best. I also see lending. That's a huge one, consumer lending, right? Getting your customers finance. Remember, you don't have the franchise benefit of having that captive. Plus, you know, all these lenders in the market that don't even want to work with an independent dealer because they're independent. They don't have a franchise attached. And so I see that the indies that the independents that can get those lenders to partner with them. Again, always been a huge opportunity in the space. It remains till today. There are many lenders that will work with you as an independent, but it takes over a decade to get the right ones, to put you on the right programs, even when they let you in, doesn't mean that you're on that franchise program, so to say. So I think there's just a lot that comes into consideration. And I do think once you unlock those separate, the captives, the, the floor planning, I think if you unlock that as a dealer, I think you're in very good shape and you could do very, very well as an independent dealer. And I think that's when you make it to be one of those independent dealers that do very well off for themselves. Well, so let me ask your opinion about this. Let's say, you know, you've got several locations and locations, you're, you're well capitalized, you're successful, you're confident in your ability as a retailer. Would you go out and acquire a new vehicle franchise? I mean, there's H. Greg that I think has been pretty successful buying Nissan dealerships, and then they still sell a tremendous amount of used units, but they have the added strength of a franchisor to, I think, assist them in building their business. Um, you know, helps literally helps them acquire the real estate, et cetera. So they buy an underperforming new vehicle franchise somewhere and bring your expertise, don't leave it behind and really light up a sleepy dealership with used vehicle entrepreneurial talent to sell more new and used cars. Is that something that you would recommend to your friends in the independent space? So I think the short answer is yes. Let me give you my thinking here, right? Um, and some people definitely disagree with me. I think like Easterns, who was on, Joel was on the pod recently, they haven't gone into the franchise space. But I think they did once, maybe like a decade ago, then they got out of it. You know, now he's, he said they may be looking at a franchise, but I think the way I think about it is like just being very black and white. You enter the franchise space, especially in today's market with all this volatility, you're just de-risking your business. That's the way I see it. In the sense that you have five different departments, more profit centers, as opposed to one. You also have all the other benefits we discussed. Get a captive lender, right? You have to like get a lending from your from your manufacturer, from your OEM. Uh, you have those floor plan credits, marketing, everything else we discussed, but you also have lease returns, right? You have this like quote unquote proprietary supply of inventory, which I think is huge as a dealer, especially used car dealers. You're relying 90 plus percent on auction typically for your purchases. Really the most inefficient acquisition channel or most expensive, you could say. I think the biggest hurdle I've seen from having conversations with other dealers about franchise is execution risk. Um, I think that it is a different business somewhat. You are entering, you have more departments that you need to manage. You likely need a bigger team, right? With a used car dealership as the sole proprietor, as the dealer principal, you could run the used car dealership 
everything could roll up to you in, in, in a way. You could be making all those decisions. You're going to be running like a chicken without its head on. I mean, you're going to be just going nuts, but you could do it. With a new car dealership, again, depending on the scale, you're going to need to start really being better at delegating, um, have some more you know, documented processes, more compliance, financial reporting for the manufacturer. So I just think that it does require somewhat of a different skill set. And if you're not, you know, if you're if you're very unsophisticated, I don't think it's the right move because I just think you'll fail from an execution perspective. So I think that's my take. I mean, if you can if you can manage the execution and you can get through it and you can scale as an operator um, and have the right people and surround yourself with the right people, I think you could do a very good job. And I would absolutely go into the franchise space, of course, with with the right brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I agree with you saying it's definitely more complicated. The good news is, if you buy a business, you're not buying a shell, right? It has a general manager there. It has an accounting department, et cetera. So they already know how to do those things. Often they've been owned by somebody who maybe has become an absentee owner, not really leaning into it, as I mentioned before. And I don't know anybody scrappier than an independent dealer. So I think in some ways, if you put an independent dealer in the <laughs> house with a franchise business, that's rocket fuel for that for that, that dealership. Yeah. And what I, I mean, we're, our firm, we're all about being friends to the dealer. Right? We're not providing services to the factory or to tech companies. We're all about serving the dealer. And, and we feel like we're, we want to be perceived as givers in our industry. And if I could give any advice to the independents, it'd be like, if you spend your whole life and you build up a group of six or eight or 10 independent locations and you call me and you say, Alan, I want to exit, can you help me? I'm going to say, I don't know. But if you call me and say, Alan, I took my proceeds from my independent stores and I bought three new car franchises. We have a three to one use to new ratio with these brands. We've got four or five independent, you know, uh, separate lots. Can you help me? I would say, yes, we can. We'll be able to sell that business. We'll be able to monetize a multiple of your earnings for your life's work. And that's where if, again, if <laughs> you, you know that business better than I do, but if, if people can take their proceeds and invest in a franchise business, you mentioned de-risking. It's not just de-risking. I think it's also creating enduring value for your family. Because if you build six or eight stores and there's no one to transition to, maybe you sell it to your general manager yourself, you finance that acquisition, maybe that'll work. But is that the same as if you could sell a franchise business that had a supercharged used car department? I don't know. But how practical is it for a used car dealer to get into the franchise space nowadays? And I say that, I mean, there's all these sharks around the table paying tens of millions for franchises. How practical is it really nowadays? I would say you would probably start small. You know, there are so many domestic stores out there. Many of them are selling just a couple hundred new cars a year. There are not a lot of people looking to buy those stores, right? Because as a new car dealer, you're saying, hey, in normal times, that business might make a half a million dollars a year. I don't really want to buy it. That's just buying myself a job, right? So the consolidators are not looking at smaller stores. They really want stores that are making, capable of making a couple million dollars or more a year. But if I'm an independent dealer, and I'm buying, you know, uh, a smaller Ford store somewhere, and I can take their used car department and double it or triple it. Now it's on a half million dollar year store. I'm creating value there. I'm not just taking their franchise model and leaving it as is. So I think if you know you start small, you buy a domestic store or a Nissan store. I mean, take a page out of what H. Greg has done. That's a franchise that's been beaten up the last five years. It's not yet return to the level of profits that it used to be. They still have good products. They still have a demand for that car. Nissan brand is kind of similar to what an independent brand might be building in terms of a value, right? But now you can bolt on all the other departments you just mentioned. Now you got four other departments. You can take a trade ends. You can take the off lease. 
you can do your warranty work for all your Nissans that you sell at your independent stores at, the, at your own store versus sending it to a third party. So I think if you start on the, the franchises that are less in demand, but you bring your used vehicle expertise, that could be a path where you might have in a market a Ford store, a Chevy store, a Nissan store. Maybe you pick up a Honda Kia store that's in a different part of town where the consolidators want to be. And over a period of time, you've got five, six branch shop businesses that do great used cars. That's a sellable asset. There'll be people that will pay for that. Versus if I had five or six independent stores in an area, I just don't know. You talk, I mean, you know the business better than I do. How many exits have you seen people make where they just get cash and walk away for their life's work? I think it's rare. Yeah. I mean, I think on the independent side specifically, you know, used car king comes to mind. That was a bit of a bit different. I was, you know, Sonic, but yeah, it's, um, it is rare. Yeah. And I think if you ask Sonic, would they do that deal today? They would say yes. Hindsight's so 2020, my friend. Well, who would have thought, who would have thought, you know, how things would, you know, five and a half points increase in, you know, like what, like a year and a half or something with rates. It's just, it's crazy how everything's changed. It, but none yeah, that makes sense. Right. The rates went up and we all made more money. Uh, I don't know about the independent side, but the franchise dealers. Definitely not. Uh, Definitely they, not on the independent side. They're usually pushing <laughs> you down your profits. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Alan, this was uh, this has been awesome. Any any closing statements? Any closing thoughts? I think if I have a personal message it would to send is, um, you know, I started this business about less than ten years ago, and uh, I probably worked for another ten years. And I have a couple kids that are in their early mid twenties now, and they raised their hands and wanted to join the, the company about six months ago. And I wasn't sure that I wanted that for them. You know, are we selling buggy whips? Are these products that are going to be obsolete in a decade or two decades or three decades when those guys are in their prime, their careers? Would it be asking them to step in and take a risk that is is risk is too great a risk for the reward? But after I saw how these dealerships performed the pandemic. Uh, certainly there's risk in every industry, uh, but I am now excited because they have joined our company and, um, you know, they're starting out at the bottom and um, we are going to try to have the, the, the best we can of having some family members, but also some really talented executives that are not named Hague to build our company. And that, if if I look out at the groups that are that are thinking about growing, it makes me, I'm doing that because I'm confident in the future of auto retail. I wouldn't have asked him to join if, if I thought this was going to go away. But along with that is there has to be growth. You have to get bigger as a retailer, in my opinion. If you stay at one or two stores, I think that you're going to gradually lose share imperceptibly to other, other uh, larger brands that have capabilities that you don't. So that term, you know, grow or get out, uh, I think is one that I would emphasize to people. I don't want to scare people and say, you got to grow right now or you're going to go out of business because that's not the case. But over the long term, the advent of this technology is going to begin to favor larger dealers versus smaller ones. There are a couple caveats. If you're the only Toyota dealer in town, you're likely going to be fine. If you're the only Porsche dealer in town, you're likely going to be fine. Those brands are so strong. I don't think that you need to have a giant company around them to sell those vehicles. So, um, I think uh, long-term, our industry is still bright. We're going to have challenges, but uh, I'm certainly investing personally and professionally in this industry. And I'm glad there are folks like you out there that are sharing the news about our industry with people who are maybe not working in it now to consider a career. I mean, car dealership guy, you have some friends that are 
general managers with stores that are making a million dollars a year, right? Where can you make that in corporate America? Almost nowhere. It's definitely a long, a long road and it would have to likely be in the finance sector. Yeah. So, so these are people that are in every community in this country that are making several hundred thousand to several million dollars a year running these enterprises. They're significant players in their communities. They're giving money to charities. They're employing people. They're providing services to folks. It's a career that no one really thinks about when they're getting out of high school or college. But in my opinion, you know, arguably one of the better careers you can have as a, as a business person. I love it. Alan, this has been great. Thanks for coming on, sharing all your knowledge. Dude, this has been the longest podcast I've, uh, I've done this far. So congrats on uh -oh. that. We, we had a new record. <laughs> That's a good Does that thing. Does that mean I'm the, the most talkative guy? No, it's just <laughs> tons, tons to discuss. And lastly, where can people learn uh, more about Haig, yourself? Uh, where can people get in contact with you? Well, we have a website, HaigPartners.com, where we have all of the reports. We issue these Haig reports each quarter, trends, auto retail, and how they impact dealership values. You can certainly call me at 954-646-8921 uh, or email me at Alan at Haig Partners. Alan is A-L-A-N. And uh, again, thank you for these podcasts and all the good information you spread to folks. I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Appreciate it, Alan. This has been great. Thanks for coming on. All right. Take care. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.